Friday morning, November 3rd, and this is Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. After six weeks, the United Auto Workers strike is over? Question mark? We'll have the latest from economics reporter Lindsay Moore. Plus, Halloween night brought record-breaking snowfall to parts of the state. Meteorologist Mark Terragrossa recaps the storm and looks ahead at what the coming winter might bring. In Holland, a dollar store has closed its doors after the entire staff quit. We'll hear why from reporter Rose White. And Matt Miller tells us how bass fishing and cornhole are among the sports giving a boost to Michigan's private colleges. All that plus an extensive roundup of this weekend's sports schedule coming up on Michigan News from MLive. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. In Wayne County on Wednesday, members of the United Auto Workers Union voted on a tentative agreement with Ford Motor Company. If the workers vote in favor, it could effectively bring an end to a six-week strike that we've heard a lot about here on the show. MLive's Lindsay Moore joins us again. She was in Wayne this week as the vote took place. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Patrick. So what are some of the key points of this agreement, and what could it mean for auto workers in Michigan and beyond? Sure. So we've seen the most details so far from Ford since they were the first to reach a tentative agreement. And the big eye-catching number here is a 25% wage increase. Um, and that really means the most for, you know, those lower, the lowest uh, paid workers, the temps, because the temps will now be going from around $16 an hour to by the end of this contract, you know, including some cost of living agreements, they're looking at $42 an hour. So it's a huge jump for those kind of lower teal workers. And it also means that a starting rate by the end of this four and a half year contract will be close to $30. Um, and so everybody is really moving up wage wise. Um, another really big highlight for folks was that that wage per Progression got, uh, you know, significantly decreased. It used to take folks about eight years to reach that top rate, and they have lowered that down to three. And they've also kind of grandfathered in the folks that were already making a progression so that they will get an immediate bump. So that was really big for folks. Um, and, and there was some stuff for retirees and folks on their way out as well. There was an add-on to the 401ks and, and uh, a $5 per years of service raise on pensions for, for monthly payments. So a little bit uh, at the top and bottom for folks, future and uh, the folks that looking at retirement. So Ford is one of what's called the big three automakers the others being Stellantis and GM. Where are those other two companies at in their negotiations with the UAW? Yeah, so typically to give a little bit of background, um, when the big three all have their contracts come up, the UAW usually picks one target to negotiate with and kind of come up with a pattern deal with. I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast. They didn't do that this time, so they were negotiating with all three at once. But Ford did kind of set this blueprint. They were the first to reach this tentative agreement. And so the other two followed suit. So right behind Ford, Stellantis reached a tentative agreement and then GM. And so we are just now coming uh, up on some details from them. At the point that we're recording this, I don't have all those details in front of me, but the union tells us that those big highlights like the wage increase, the wage progression, those are consistent. Um, Another big one was ending tiers between workers. That was a really uh, strong 
That was a very strong bargaining chip for the union this round. And as I mentioned, you were in Wayne outside the local 900s union hall, which is right across the street from Ford's Michigan assembly plant. What was the mood like among the voters you talked to? Are they happy with the tentative agreement and are they hopeful it'll get the votes it needs? Yeah, so the the Michigan uh, assembly plant was the first to walk out too. So these folks had been out for the entire you know duration of those six weeks of the strike. So a lot of them were happy to be back to work. Um, a lot of them were actually very optimistic. Everyone I spoke to was voting in favor of the contract. They felt that Sean Fain, the UAW president, you know, held his end of the bargain to go all the way. A lot of them were surprised that the strike had gone this long, um, while others, though, did tell me that they were willing to hold the line even further. Um, but folks that are on that lower end of the pay scale, I had mentioned those temps or those workers that were, you know, in that kind of one to two, three year mark, they were ecstatic with these wage gains. Folks on the other end that were looking at retirement, that this is probably going to be the last contract that they're part of, they kind of shrugged their shoulders. They said, this is good for the future of workers. It doesn't do a ton for me personally. Um, But even so, they felt like that it was a, a worthy agreement to vote on and that it was worth ending the strike over. Lindsay, you wrote a story this week about the overall economic impact this six week strike has had. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So right here in Michigan, Anderson Economic Group has been doing a weekly estimate of what they say just kind of overall losses are for automakers, the workers, suppliers. The big economic impact, the price tag of this latest week was $10 billion, $10.5 billion to be specific, which really blows out of the water any other strikes we've seen uh, this century and certainly doubles the last strike we saw in 2019 when UAW's target was GM. Um, the vast majority of that, that $4.3 billion is in lost production and facilities costs of the big three. That that Obviously, those automakers really took the biggest hit, but you know there were a lot of lost wages as well. So everybody really, you know, took a took a hit financially for this six week strike. And speaking of lost wages, you've reported that many employees have now returned to work, but there are still some who have not. When is it safe to say that this strike is officially over and what needs to happen to get there? So all the striking workers have resumed at the big three, but all the companies have mentioned that the kind of domino effect that happened from idling some of these really big assembly plants, for instance, those layoffs are still happening. So Ford has a thousand workers still out. So just has 500 some. GM did not share with me an exact number, but you can see that, you know, there was this uh, ripple effect that happened to folks. So not everybody's back to work. It'll take a minute to kind of restart things. But the real, like, you know, end to this strike will be when all of these contracts are ratified. So like you mentioned, Wednesday was the first day of voting for the Ford contract. It's worth noting that Ford has the most UAW members out of the big three, and that goes local by local. And then when the other two go on to their voting process, then we'll get that final tally, but that could be weeks from now. And so um, something that's different from previous strikes is that the union has sent workers back to the big three, even though they haven't officially ratified a contract yet. Um, Again, I think it's worth noting that it's historic that all three had a strike at the same time. That's never happened before. So going back to work was, I think, kind of a bargaining chip from the companies as well, even though it's not over, over (laughs) quite yet. Lindsay Moore is an economics reporter with MLive who has been tirelessly covering this historic United Auto Workers strike. You can read all of her coverage from the past six weeks at MLive.com slash UAW. Thanks again, Lindsay. Thank you. It's not unusual to see a few flakes of snow on a Michigan Halloween. 
But this Tuesday saw some record-setting snowfall in parts of the state. MLive meteorologist Mark Torregrossa is here to tell us more about Tuesday's Snowloween and take a look at the winter ahead. Hi, Mark. Hey, hello. I like that. Snow, Snowloween. How did you... How did you phrase that? Yeah, Snowloween. I don't know. It's kind of a stretch, but gave it a try. <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what. For the folks around Muskegon, um, it works. And around Grand Haven, uh, when you're looking at uh, 8.8 officially, 8.8 inches of snow officially in Muskegon, a record by far, <laughs> really by far, um, that's, that's a big snow for Halloween. Absolutely. I live up in Benzie County where we did see some snowfall on Halloween night, but it seemed like maybe a couple inches max and it didn't stick everywhere. So yeah, I was shocked to read some of the snowfall totals you reported from other parts of the state. 8.8 inches, you said, in Muskegon. Where else did Tuesday's winter storm hit the hardest? Uh, We got some reports up to almost a foot around Muskegon. We got Whitehall at 9 inches, Norton Shores around Muskegon, 8 inches, uh, Grand Haven, 6.8. And that's about it, other than the scattered 1 or 2 inches around the state. Flint, Saginaw, Bay City area had an inch or so. Not really super abnormal. Those were also record snows for Halloween, but we know an inch could happen. But when we start thinking about 8, 10, 12 inches of snow on Halloween, we know that that's uh, very bizarre. And that is the wonderful thing about Michigan weather. If you're a, if you're a Michigan weather fan, uh, the wonderful thing is we get these what we call mesoscale, small scale, on the order of 10 miles wide, 20 miles wide uh, snowstorms. And, you know, you might have a friend in Muskegon and they text you say, wow, it is terrible here. And you're in Grand Rapids. You say, what are you talking about? And Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Lake Superior, the shape, the unique shape of the land of Michigan, the actual state shape, all of those things combine to give a weather world that nobody else in the world has. Yeah, there's certainly not a dull moment when it comes to weather in Michigan. And Mark, here we are in early November already. Definitely time to break out the warmer layers. You've reported on another possible winter storm coming late next week. Tell us what to expect there. Yeah, this is just a a fun, you know, let's keep watching some things. I don't see a an extreme storm coming, but we are on the cold edge of storms now. We are in the storm track, and that means that um, the Climate Prediction Center, they make, also make the, the two- and three-week forecast, not just predicting the climate out into the years, but they see a potential for an accumulating snow uh, next week. And that's a point I think that I want to make, which I think you're probably going to lead into uh, talking about winter weather. So I'm going to let you ask your question because I know it's coming because everybody asks it right now. It's almost like, um, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Johnny Carson. I I know of him. I I don't know if I ever actually caught the show. You know, he had to sing the great Karnak the Magnificent. He would hold up an envelope to his head and and he would guess what the question was going to be. And then he would hand it over to Ed McMahon and Ed McMahon would uh, open it up and read the question. And I'm doing that right now because when someone walks up to me on the street and says, hey, I got a question for you, I know what it is. So go ahead. 
you probably are guessing it has something to do with a more extended winter forecast from NOAA, which it does. Because, you know, Mark, as, as a skier, I'm getting really excited by the snow we're seeing. I can't wait to get out on the trails and the slopes. It might be my favorite time of year, which is why I was pretty disappointed by NOAA's extended winter forecast that you wrote about a couple weeks ago now. Break that down for us. What are some big picture predictions that we're hearing for this winter? Okay, let's go with Cliff Notes version first, okay? Their forecast, and I would tend to agree with it, uh, calls for warmer than normal conditions in the winter, December, January, February, and drier than normal conditions in the winter, December, January, and February. So that leads me to two more important notes on the Cliff Notes version. Warmer than normal winter does not mean warm winter. <laughs> it means if you average a high of 28 in January every day, you might get some 32s or 35s or maybe a 40 a day or here or there, but not warm. You're not going to run around in shorts. So it's almost the kiss of death to a meteorologist and meteorology. When we forecast a warmer than normal winter, the first snowstorm, people say, Ah, you were totally wrong. It wasn't supposed to snow. No, warmer than normal and drier than normal. So that tends to make a not as harsh winter in Michigan. And it also tends to make less snow than normal. You know, just to throw out numbers, Benzie County, you know, you probably, if you live in the snow belt in Benzie County, you typically probably average 100 or 120 inches of snow a year. You might get 60 or 80 inches. Put it into perspective, if Detroit got 80 inches of snow, it would be one of the worst winters they ha ever, ever had. Um, the second thing that I need to get people to understand is this is a winter forecast, December, January, February, based on the fact that El Nino effects, the warming effects of El Nino, typically show up in the Great Lakes region around Christmas. And can I share with you the most interesting thing I find about El Nino? Absolutely. Okay. El Nino. Do you know any Spanish? Do you know what the word El Nino means? Yeah, it means like the boy, the little boy, right? It does, but it's capitalized. The boy. Who do you think they're talking about as the boy? I don't want to put you on the spot, but... Uh, is it Mark Torregrossa? No, 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 it's not. Jesus Christ. Okay. And so, meteorologists didn't just make up this word El Nino, you know, in modern day times is something we want to talk about in weather. The folks off of the, uh, in Chile and Peru, the coast of South America along the equator, uh, coined this term in about 300 AD. Why? Because they live in some of the driest deserts of the world. You know, some of those places in Peru and Chile might get five inches of rain a whole year. We can get five inches of rain here in Michigan in a week. So they normally typically have a east to west wind, and it's a really dry wind. But El Nino is when the ocean water warms up off their coast, and for some reason, the wind switches. Instead of a dry east to west wind, it's a wet west to east wind. Brings water, brings moisture and storms off of the Pacific. They get a lot of rain in the winter, and they grow a great crop the following year. And it just so happens that this wind switch 
down there typically happens around Christmas. So they coined it El Nino as a rain gift from the Christ child, Jesus Christ. There you go. That's that's some really interesting historical context that I never knew. Well, I've been talking with MLive's Mark Torregrossa about Tuesday's historic Halloween snowstorm and taking a look at some very extended forecasts for this winter. You can read Mark's work at MLive.com weather. Mark, thanks for your time. Hey, no problem. Regular listeners to this show might remember a conversation about dollar stores back in August. We heard about their growing presence throughout Michigan and about a rural community that tried and failed to keep Dollar General out of town. Rose White is an economics reporter with MLive who wrote that story and has continued on the dollar store beat. Most recently, she reported on one store in Holland, Michigan, where the entire staff quit this fall. Rose joins us now with more. Hi, Rose. Hi, Patrick. So your recent story starts with this scene of box after box stacking up in the storeroom of a Dollar General trucks dropping off more inventory before employees even have a chance to unload the last batch. I mean, I started to feel overwhelmed just reading it. So how does a dollar store get into this situation? I think what what we saw here um, was they had very low levels of staffing for the amount of work that was required to keep this store operating. So the employees that I talked to just described this scene of never being able to catch up. Um, They're trying to unload boxes. Some of them have been in their storeroom for three years, Um, but, you know, they're trying to to tackle this backlog. And in the meantime, every day, Dollar General trucks are bringing in more supplies and they have to unload the fresh stuff first, the frozen stuff first. Um, And they're doing this with maybe two people working a shift um, at a time. So we're focusing on this one store in Holland, um, but kind of what the story illuminated was that these are issues that have popped up at Dollar General stores across the country. You know, last weekend I happened to stop in a Dollar General in the UP because I needed a nine volt battery and I got one, but it took a long time to find it because so many shelves were blocked with carts full of other supplies yet to be unloaded. And again, it was pretty stressful just to look at and probably even more so for the store staff. But as you've reported, employees aren't the only ones who've taken notice of working conditions in some of these understaffed Dollar Generals. The Federal Department of Labor has actually fined the company for this, right? Yeah, that's correct. So since 2017, Dollar General has faced $21 million in fines from um, the U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration, otherwise known as OSHA, much less of a mouthful. So that sounds, I mean, that's a big slap on the wrist. Um, you know, this is, uh, that's a lot of fines that stack up. Um, that This is a, the result of over 240 federal investigations. Um, and so in all of these reports, investigators have hit on the same things over and over again. And it's aisles that are blocked by merchandise, emergency exits that are blocked by these big, what they'd call roll tainers, these stainless steel carts that carry all these boxes. Um, boxes of merchandise that are just stacked dangerously high fire hazards. So these are all the things that the employees at the Holland store kind of detailed to me, um, but have come up over and over again in some of these um, safety reports. And so all of these things and these persistent issues um, 
have led OSHA to deem Dollar General a severe violator. So even though these issues have been flagged over and over and over again, um, they they haven't really addressed any of these issues. And I think the bottom line and kind of what the employees have described to me is, you know, they're working their hardest. Um, you know, it's not really on the employees here, but it's just what they describe as inadequate staffing levels. They cannot keep up with the workload. Um, and that's just creating some of these safety issues. And Rose, you wrote that another safety issue with understaffing at dollar stores is the potential for crime. How so? Yeah, so, you know, critics have pointed this out um, that uh, because there's thin staffing, it just makes Dollar Generals an easy target for theft. So if you have two people working a shift, one person working the register, one person unloading boxes in the back. So that means you don't have enough staff to monitor anybody who might be um, just grabbing a few items on the way out the door. Um, but, you know, it goes beyond just sort of that that level of theft. And, and um, they've also become targets for armed robberies um, in January, $20 stores, so not even just Dollar Generals, but um, any dollar store. Uh, the Detroit police chief called them soft targets after 20 of them had been robbed at gunpoint um, just within the first three weeks of January. Um, and in um, Georgia, there was a sheriff there who told CNN last year that they don't call them dollar stores, they call them stop and robs because they see so many of these stores get robbed just because there's such a low level of staffing um, and there isn't enough security measures in place to stop some of these crimes from happening. And what has the company had to say? Have you gotten any comment from Dollar General about this store in Holland or about staffing issues in general? Yeah, they, they replied to me when I, I sent, you know, several questions asking them about some of the concerns raised by the employees. And they just sent me a, a brief statement saying they apologizing for the store closure um, and any inconvenience that caused for people who live in the area. Um, but they didn't really respond to any of the issues that were raised by the employees. But they've responded and sent statements to other media outlets just saying that they um, do their best to implement any kind of safety measures and respond to some of these concerns from employees and from OSHA. So they have acknowledged that. And I think, you know, the other thing that's worth pointing out is um, the Dollar General shareholders, they have also raised these issues in annual reports. But Dollar General, the company, has pushed back on some of the ways that the shareholders have tried to address these issues as well. Rose White is an economics reporter with MLive. Head over to our website to read her story about what drove every employee of a Michigan Dollar General store to quit. Thanks for your time, Rose. Thanks, Patrick. Many small private colleges in Michigan are facing declining enrollment and a shrinking pool of potential students. But as Matt Miller reports, many of those schools are responding with an increased emphasis on sports. Matt is a senior reporter with MLive's statewide team and joins us now. Hi, Matt. Hi. So it does seem that in Michigan and beyond, many colleges that compete in maybe Division III or even lower tiers are having a really high percentage of the student body participate in athletics. When did this trend begin and what has it done for the small private colleges in Michigan? This dates back roughly 15 years. So back in 2005, uh, a guy named Jeffrey Docking was hired as the president of Adrian College. He is still the president. And the way he tells the story, he was looking at Adrian, which is a small college in a small town with decent academics, but not necessarily a lot that is going to distinguish it from other small colleges in small towns with decent academics. And so he started looking at what's going to make a student choose 
Adrian over other schools. And what he came up with was sports. And so when he was hired as president, Adrian was doing pretty poorly. I think their student body was down to about 800. And they were getting so few applications that they were admitting basically everyone who applied. He convinced the school to invest something like $30 million in athletic facilities. They added sports teams. They boosted recruitment. And they gave coaches recruiting goals. And it worked. They turned They turned around. They doubled their enrollment. And it turns out that they were able to make money on sports. By the time you factored in the tuition that, you know, students who might not have otherwise come paid – you know, it was bringing in money that could support other things that the school wanted to do. And so he, Docking wrote a book about that a few years ago. And I think a lot of I think a lot of folks in Michigan were aware of that kind of success and had started to copy it. But what you're seeing now is a lot of schools that have seen their percentage of students who are also student athletes jump over the past 15 years. And one of the colleges you focus on in your story, which is, of course, on MLive.com, is Concordia University in Ann Arbor. What impact has the focus on college athletics had there? Well, if you go back about a dozen years, Concordia was on the verge of closing. It had, I think, a bit over 400 students. Its finances weren't in great shape. And a couple of things have allowed it to continue. One is a merger with Concordia University, Wisconsin, that happened, I believe, in 2013, Uh, But the other is they added a lot of sports teams, and along the way they invested a lot of money in decent facilities. One of the reasons I focused on Concordia in the story is that Concordia, I think it's something like 73% of their full-time students are also student-athletes, and about 20% of those play on more than one team. So they really – like it's a huge percentage of the student body that participates, and so it's not just – saved the institution, but it's also really reshaped the culture. The students I talked to there said, yeah, you know, everyone here is doing something like what we do. Everyone here is an athlete. Everyone here competes. And it it changes the tenor of things on campus. Yeah. And you mentioned that they added a lot of sports. That was one of the things I was surprised to read was about some of the less typical athletic programs that a lot of these colleges are offering. Tell us about some of the more unique sports that private colleges are promoting. Well, I think what schools are running into is that once you've added football and basketball and baseball and track and gymnastics and lacrosse and swimming, all of these sports, where do you go from there? And I think Adrian has probably been the most out there in terms of what, you know, just adding sports that you don't typically see on college campuses. So, you know, a a few schools have added esports, a few schools have bowling. Adrian has bass fishing. It's got cornhole. Davenport University added Ultimate Frisbee just this year. And so it's not just going for kind of your typical high school athlete now. And at this point, they're looking for folks who might have played sports recreationally who are looking for a chance to, you know, take that into a different kind of competition. Matt Miller is a senior reporter with MLive's statewide team. You can read his full story on our website. It's titled, Can Bass Fishing and Football Save Private Colleges? Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Before we wrap up the show this week, here's a rundown of the sports schedule for this weekend and into next week. Let's start with Detroit. 
The Red Wings sit in second place in the Atlantic Division at the time of recording. They're headed to Boston next to play the first place Bruins, Saturday at 7 p.m. The NBA is underway as well. The Pistons hope to improve on last season's record of 17-65, the worst in the league. They'll host the Phoenix Suns Sunday at 3 p.m. at Little Caesars Arena. And it's a bye week for the 6-2 Detroit Lions, and also a bye for the undefeated Michigan Wolverines, although the news coming out of the program is certainly not taking a break. Check out the Wolverine Confidential Podcast for the latest on the illegal sign-stealing investigation. Michigan State will try yet again to snap their losing streak as they face the Nebraska Cornhuskers Saturday at noon. The Spartans have lost their last six games, with only two wins on the season and none in conference play. But the good news for fans is basketball is around the corner. You can hear a season preview on the latest episode of MLive's Spartan Confidential Podcast. Central Michigan football doesn't play till Tuesday, November 7th, when they'll face the Broncos of Western Michigan in Kalamazoo. And finally, Eastern Michigan heads to Toledo to take on the Rockets next Wednesday, the 8th at 7.30 p.m. That's all for this week. I'm Patrick Shea. Thanks as always for listening and have a great weekend.